podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I am one of the hosts, Christopher. And I am the other one, John. Jonathan. Um, John. I, you know, I, I, I feel like we say this a lot, which must mean we're just talking to awesome people. But again, this, was, this one got my panties in a bunch. This was one of my favorite episodes. Ladies, he is sorry. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sorry. Okay, he's not sorry. I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. Why... Did you get so emotional during this one? You know, it was, was it? it was we recorded this pretty soon after the election. Yes. It was a divisive type election. I mean, the country is split. People are seceding from the union, which by the way, if you want to secede, f-ing do it. Like literally get out of my country because here's what a friend of mine told me. They said, "We're going to let them secede, then we're going to invade them." And then we're going to charge them for whatever we want and be like, oh, that sucks. You know, I was thinking about it, too. I mean, why wouldn't we just put trade embargoes on them? Who <laughs> else is going to who else is going to trade with it's them? It's just so ignorant. And then one her. I mean, here's the thing. It's such a small percentage of people that want to do it. Guys, and I'm half joking, but little, it's just absurd. Little known fact, I believe every state in the union has to vote on whether a state can secede from the country. So even if these people get a successful ballot out there or whatever they want to do to see if they can vote on it, then every other state's going to do it. And not every state, there's going to be a state that's going to be like, you know what, screw you, no chance. Anyways, that is actually not what we talk about in this interview at all, but this is the kind of thing it inspires. So today we, we, we talk with Linda McQuaig. She's amazing. She's super smart. Like you can just tell the people you interview that are smart and know their stuff. And she wrote her most recent book is called Billionaire's Ball, Gluttony and Hubris in an Age of Epic Inequality. So as you can imagine, what we talk about is the wealth gap and tax reformation, um, but in the right way and how that's gotten such a bad, it's, that's just gotten such a bad name. But there are ways it can be done. I'm not talking about the person making 250 grand, you know, even half a million. Like, I know that that's not, you're not uber rich anymore. These people making 10 million, 20 million, CEOs get paid tens of millions of dollars upon leaving because they sucked at their job. And no, it's not Wall Street's fault. I'm not, I'm not, well, it kind of is, but I'm not like placing all this blame. I'm just saying it's time to make some changes or else we, I don't know, man. Listen, next week we'll have a podcast that you can be passionate about, okay? <laughs> don't we'll we'll get we'll get Good, to a topic that you're passionate about. Me. You know, here's the thing. I don't claim to know everything. I don't claim to know much, and there are a lot of people that know more, and that's why we talk to them. And there is another side to this coin, I realize, and I I'd actually like to get somebody on to talk about it. But what it what it is great talking to Linda about is what she knows. She talks about history, the 1920s, which was the last great age of inequality. Um, tax plans we've had in the past that have worked versus ones that haven't. And just there's some good things to take home and think about. Do your own research, whatever it might be. Yeah, and bottom line is we are split, but we need to realize that it's not a right versus left thing. It's not a Democrat versus Republican thing. People need to come together. We need to get over the bickering and the fighting and the we're going to secede, we're good, you secede, like that yeah, kind guess, of stuff. Yeah, right. I got and, fired up. And it, no, I'm not putting this on no, you, but I'm just saying, in general, the Smart People Podcast will bring America together and we all will live happily ever after. While America's coming together, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Click on the Amazon tab or the Amazon banner. Use that for your holiday purchases. It is the way we kind of tax everyone because this is free so i don't even know what this is yeah and if you have to buy supplies for when your when your state is planning to secede (laughs) just buy your supplies on amazon anyways i i feel like this is one of the world's longest intros but it is um, we're sorry yeah great show lindem quake billionaire's ball enjoy A lot of your writing and your your work 
is based on or based around, it has a political theme. Obviously, you take more of a liberal or, correct me if I'm wrong, socialist type, you know, approach. And I was Yeah, I would describe myself as progressive in my approach. Okay. And, and I was wondering, where did that come from? Have you always been very interested in politics and the wealth gap and things like that? If you could just give us a little background. Yeah, I guess it's true. I have always been interested in this subject. I don't know quite why, except I guess I'm all, I've always been interested in sort of the way power operates in society and the way the, the most powerful, richest members of society always seem to me to be able to get away with so much. And I, I don't know, I guess that always just kind of stuck in my craw as something that bothered me. You have numerous books that you've written that have done really well. Have you always been a writer or how did that start for you? Yeah, I've always, well, I've always been a journalist. So I started out basically um, as a newspaper reporter. Through that, kind of gravitated to stories, you know, about how power operates and who, who gets to make the decisions on things. And, and then uh, I started writing books along those themes. And, and then I'm also a columnist. So, you know, basically as a, as a writer, reporter and writer, more generally, of books, uh, I mean, that's, you know, that's basically what I've done. And I know your most recent book is the one that I initially wanted to talk about, which is Billionaire's Ball, Gluttony yeah. and Hubris in an Age of Epic Inequality. And that is something, inequality, the wealth gap, something that's on everybody's mind these days. And my, my first thing that I get into with a lot of people is the idea of tax reform. And I wanted to get your opinion on if we do tax the wealthy more and, and try and narrow the wealth gap through that, what is the incentive of maybe the, I don't even want to say lower class, but lower middle class to really work hard, take the risks that these small business owners have taken if they are going to not real, if they're kind of going to get handouts or, or money given to them through wealth redistribution? Yeah, I mean, the way I approach something like that is that, first of all, everybody kind of works at what they're doing. It's not as if people that are building up businesses are working, everyone else is not working. And it's not as if if you were to tax them that they would be, you know, for some eventual success that they would be so discouraged that they would kind of give up. I mean, one of the ways I like to think of this is, you know, t take somebody like a, you know, a Mark Zuckerberg. When he was developing Facebook and, and there was competition, other people were trying to develop social media at the same time. Do we really think that he was, would have been deterred by the thought that, oh, my God, what if I'm phenomenally successful someday and I have to pay a lot of tax? You know, I mean, do, do you think that that was likely going through his mind? I mean, I'm sure what was going through his mind was, how can I get there first? How can I be the first to develop social media, given all the competition that's going on. And the last thing on his mind was the eventual taxes he would pay should he become phenomenally, obscenely wealthy. You know, I mean, the, the notion that that was on his mind or that that would have discouraged him. I mean, do we imagine that if he thought he was only going to end up, I think he's got something like $13 billion now or something. Do we, do we think if he'd only, you know, if taxes had ended up taking away some and he ended up with only five billion. He would have somehow been so discouraged. He would have just abandoned the whole project. I mean, it's just a ludicrous proposition. Now, do you have any idea where that thought process came from? Where all these business owners and, and millionaires, billionaires, are saying, "Oh, we have to be tax less." so that we create jobs. I mean, that's pretty much yeah. a new thing. That didn't always exist. They were taxed well, no, at high rates before. Yeah, let, let, let's, let's put it this way. That type of argument has been around for a long time. It's really achieved a lot more currency in the last 30 years. But that, that's an old chestnut that's always trotted out by the rich. And, and you say, where does it come from? Well, it comes from the imagination of people that are trying to come up with justifications for a distribution of income that favors the people at the top. I mean, that's so much of what goes on in our think tanks today and, and our, you know, uh, lobby groups and, and political parties and everything is to think up justifications for policies that favor the, the very well-to-do. I think it was John Kenneth Galbraith had a wonderful expression when he described the modern conservative as somebody who's engaged in a 
superior justification for selfishness. In other words, these policies that favor the, the well-to-do, they have to have justifications for them. You, if you just propose policies that are blatantly favorable to the well-to-do, people will sort of think, well, that, geez, that doesn't seem fair. So there has to be kind of elaborate arguments developed that it's, you know, we, we're not favoring the well-to-do just because we're beholden to them or we're trying to be nice to them or, or we've gotten paybacks from them. We're favoring them because that's in the interest of all of us, you know, this trickle-down argument that if we only concentrate money in the hands of the very rich, you know, they'll they'll invest it and create all kinds of jobs. In fact, you know, the evidence is just overwhelming. If we look at the situation now, the taxes have been cut drastically in the last 30 years. The accumulation of money at the top is just phenomenal, and yet the rich are not investing. They are not creating jobs, you know, the way the argument goes. And one of the reasons they're not is that they've managed to attract so much money up to the top through changes in the legislation, et cetera, that the people at the, you know, there's very little growth. There's been very little growth in the past 30 years in the real incomes of ordinary people. So there's not much of a market for the rich to invest to produce things because there's not much of a market to sell to. So I guess I'm just saying in response to your question that, in fact, these arguments, there's a whole series of arguments used to justify accumulations of money at the top. And when you kind of actually analyze them and, and actually look at the numbers that could contest them, you find that there's very, very, very little evidence to actually support them. And now one thing I did want to say, and I guess it's it's evident in the title of your book, Billionaire's Ball, do you mostly point this out regarding billionaires or do you say, you know, millionaires as well or is there a cutoff? Because I know a lot of the pushback we hear is, hey, they want to increase taxes on people who make, you know, couples who make over $250,000 a year. And $250,000 a year is not rich. And to be honest, living in D.C., I'm going to agree with them. It, it, it's not rich. Now, you're never going to be hurting. And people that tell me that drive me insane. But I think there is a difference between, obviously, half a million and a billion. So I just wanted to see what you focus your, your yeah. time and argument towards. Yeah, that, you, you're absolutely right. Of course, there's a vast difference between somebody earning 250000 and the, the billionaire class. And, and in calling the book Billionaire's Ball and focusing on billionaires, I mean, we're and, and by the way, this, I wrote this book with Neil Brooks, who's a tax professor. And, and our focus is not just on billionaires, but, but billionaires are, they, they represent the problem of extreme inequality in a very dramatic way. So while we're concerned about inequality in general, we are concerned particularly with what we call the sort of rise or return to plutocracy. Uh, and that really does mean like the accumulation, concentration of income and wealth at the very top. So when you talk about plutocracy, you're talking about a society that's essentially run by the rich. And and by that, you know, we're not really referring to people making 250000 a year. We're more referring to the multimillionaires, you know, the, the people in the Mitt Romney class and mm-hmm. above. I mean, you, you can draw the line in many different places, but we're concerned, among other things, about the incredible power that becomes concentrated in the hands of a very small group, very wealthy group, when you have that much inequality. Uh, that makes sense. It's, it's more that what they represent and not how many of them there are, even though yeah. there are then, an insane amount of billionaires. Well, there, there, are, there are quite a few of them, but, but obviously compared to the population sure. as a whole, there's, there's relatively few. In, in talking, for instance, about taxing the rich more, there's a couple of goals. Like there's one of the goals is, we know, to raise more revenue. I mean, that's a huge part of the problem. Uh, we need more revenue in order to have the kinds of programs in society that we want, in addition to paying off the debt and that sort of thing, or paying down the deficit. But, but we also, as I say, we believe that plutocracy is a problem in itself. Allowing that much wealth and power to be concentrated in such few hands means that though that a very small segment of society will have enormous way over all kinds of political decision-making. In fact, virtually a veto over incredibly important things like 
clearly one of the areas that they want to affect the most is things like economic policy and tax policy and financial policies in order to make those policies favor their own interest. You know, they've developed a virtu- the rich virtually have a veto over those kind of policies. They've developed a virtual veto in recent years. But, you know, I would also go on and say that I think there's a whole other area that we haven't, hasn't really been looked at that much, and that is the extent to which having greatly concentrated wealth and power in the hands of the few, the impact that has on a whole other broad range of very serious global problems. And, and the one that, that I would pick on particularly is something like climate change. You know, essentially you've got a tiny group of the most powerful wealthy interests on earth, that is basically the, you know, the oil lobby, essentially able to block any progress towards tackling climate change. I mean, that, that's just a phenomenal power and a phenomenal reality that is just devastating potentially to the world. One of the things I did want to talk about that I didn't know, because I'm not a history major, is the 1920s you talk about was the last great age of inequality. And I was hoping for those that don't know, obviously very few people alive experienced that. Could you give us a brief little history lesson or talk about why that was and how similar it is? It's true. The 1920s was the last period. And going back even earlier in the 1890s was another, you know, period considered the sort of glittering age of inequality. But but let's just say there was extreme inequality in the 1920s. In fact, virtually the same amount of inequality, the same degree of inequality, the same amount of concentration of income at the top in the late 20s in America as there is today. And and one of the things that we talk about, the reason we bring in all this history, is partly to show that that concentrate that incredible concentration of income and wealth at the top ends up creating the conditions that leads to the Wall Street crash of 1929, just as it leads to the Wall Street crash of 2008. There's just phenomenal parallels, and and one of the reasons is when you have that degree of concentration in the hands of the few, as I was mentioning earlier, there's very little incentive for them to invest in the broader productive economy because ordinary people's incomes aren't growing. So there's, you know, not much of a market to sell to. So that, that encourages the rich to instead turn to financial speculation. And also their phenomenal economic power and political power allows them to use that power to lobby for and change the financial regulations to loosen things up so they can speculate very wildly, essentially, out of control. And that's exactly what happened in the late 20s and what happened, as we know, in the lead-up to 2008. So essentially, those conditions are just, you know, apart from any conditions of any questions of fairness or what that means for ordinary people, it's just incredibly destabilizing for the financial system to allow money to accumulate so heavily in the hands of the few. Yeah, and everybody loves to throw around the term free market, that free market's going to take care of everything. But as you mentioned, when you have so much money at the top, you're not starting in a free market. A free market would exist if everybody was at the same, at the starting line at the same time, but they're well, not. The, yeah, I mean, let, let's put it this way. Well, or at least that would be some kind of fair market. If yeah, sure. At the same time. Yeah. But one of the important points is people talk about sort of, they say, oh, well, I'm entitled to this income. I earned it in the free market. And they make it sound like the free market is some kind of natural organism or something governed by the laws of science and nature, sort of like the laws of gravity or something. In fact, the simple truth is the market is nothing more than a construct. It's a construct of human-made laws governing property and all kinds of things. And in fact, the way the, the income that anyone receives is to a large extent the you know it has something to do with your own effort and how hard you work and all that kind of thing but it also has to do with the particular ways the laws are structured in any society at any time so for instance if you have a a country that's kind of more sympathetic to labor then the market is going to consist of laws that are let's say, guaranteeing the right to strike or guaranteeing, you know, minimum wages or, or whatever. 
the right to unionize. Well, that'll strengthen the power of workers and therefore give them more leverage and they'll probably end up with bigger incomes. So, so the, the, the point is that the market is not some natural thing. It's, a, it's a, just a set of laws that people have created. And so one of those laws, some of those laws affect, for instance, tax policy. So when people sort of say, you can't get your tax hands off my money, I earned it in the marketplace. Well, the tax laws are just one aspect of a complex marketplace that is made up of a whole bunch of human laws. And the reason that the the rich tend to be so hostile about the tax laws is that most of the other laws they've managed to shape so thoroughly to favor their own interests, you know, the way they've managed to, for instance, you know, weaken the rights of labor, that the one key vehicle that we have at this point uh, to kind of make things more equal would be the tax system. And of course, they managed to weaken the the progressivity of the tax system as well. But the point is that the market is just just whatever you make of it. And, And a democratic society can shift those laws in many different ways, and that can end up with many different results. Before John asked this last question, I was amazed because I thought about it. If I had $100 million or $50 million, the last thing on my mind would be creating jobs for the, the rest of society. I, I honestly think it would. I would be on my yacht, like, float. I don't know, maybe I wouldn't be that bad, but there's no incentive at that point. And like you said, I'd be gambling. I'd just be throwing more to see how much I could get out of the market and speculating. And that point alone was was worth reiterating. I, I don't know. I was blown away yeah, by I that. Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't know that you would necessarily be like that. I mean, there's, right. you know. <laughs> uh, but, but unfortunately, there does seem to be a tendency. I mean, it, you know, well, it's not a tendency. It's a reality. People you know, that accumulate large amounts of money tend to want to, you know, indulge themselves or, or at least to accumulate huge treasure troves. And, and they don't generally, I mean, you don't hear them sort of say, well, I'm going to invest this just to create jobs. They will invest it to create jobs if the circumstances are favorable to their interests to do so. Yeah, and I but the problem is, if if people don't have money to buy their products, there's no incentive for them to do so. Right, and I can hear the other side saying, "Yeah, but if you buy that yacht, you create a job to the people that made it, and blah blah blah." But it, I don't know that well, argument's that's, clear. That's true, but but that's it is true. The rich do consume yachts, and they do consume expensive houses, and they consume expensive cars. But the simple truth is, even if they try their hardest. To consume as wildly extravagantly as they can, and some of them do do this. They can't. They don't. They don't have the time to consume enough. Right. Uh, the, the, you know. The, so so they do buy expensive things. They buy jewelry and watches and yachts and everything. But even so, they have so much left over, multi billions that just remain locked away somewhere in stocks or 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 gambled on Wall Street because Wall Street has become basically a big gambling parlor. Well, we know that the evidence is that they are not, you know, that money is accumulated at the top and it's not being invested. And, of course, the argument of the rich is, you know, make it more attractive to us, like eliminate, you know, some of them would like to eliminate taxes completely on the rich. You know, remove all the environmental regulations so that they aren't in the way. Remove all kinds of regulations. Well, think about that. I mean, think of how, first of all, totally irresponsible that is, as if preserving the environment has no consequence whatsoever and we should just be able to throw it away as a kind of non-important thing in order to hopefully encourage the rich that maybe they'll invest and create jobs. I mean, this this is such a backward way of of approaching these kinds of things. You know, and you mentioned that they wanted to weaken the rates of labor. And that's something that I started thinking about this week when I saw Denny's and Papa John's and and Applebee's and all these other restaurants within the U.S. that are going to cut hours and cut workers because Obamacare is going into effect. These companies are saying they don't have enough money to pay their employees. 
of how vicious that is. Just think of oh, how it's... absolutely vicious that is. I mean, first of all, those companies are not about to go bankrupt. They're, in fact, doing well. They're just flexing their muscles and just saying, you know, we have the power. Because of the changes that have been made over the last 30 years, so weakening the labor protection, so weakening the power of unions, undermining minimum wage laws and that sort of thing, so that it is a kind of employer's market. Look at that attitude, just sort of they'll grind these people into the ground as much as possible. Look, we saw that attitude in, with Mitt Romney in that secret video when he talks about the 47%. Yeah. I mean, and he's, you know, obviously everyone in the room, seemed, the multimillionaires in the room seem to be agreeing with him. That there's just a kind of contempt for these people. And, you know, Romney says something like, it's not my job to, to worry about them. There's a class, an overclass that's developed, uh, you know, in recent years that's become, you know, you can only say they have a sense of entitlement. They actually think that they are, you know, making an extraordinary contribution and that, in fact, they deserve to be fabulously wealthy. Maybe we should just quickly sort of think about that, whether that's the case, because it's often argued now sort of, oh, well, you know, the rich today, they're not like the rich before that got all their income from inheritance. These people built their own empires. Well, first of all, if you look at the numbers, actually you find that a very small number of these ultra-wealthy people are people who built any kind of enterprise. It's, I think it's about 3% of them are entrepre- <laughs> serious entrepreneurs. The majority of them, actually, are a huge amount of what of the, the top 0.1%, for instance, 60% are either got their money either on, on Wall Street or as corporate CEOs. And so, you, you know, you have things like Mitt Romney as a private equity manager. But, you know, that's, well, I mean, we know from that story, it's not so much about building up a company. It's about taking over companies, leveraging them up with debt, stripping assets out and stripping profits out. I mean, this is, this is a very different kind of capitalism than the capitalism that we had uh, before 1980. That was kind of the point with seeing what's happening with Papa John's and Denny's, too, because they're looking at maximum profits and they want to treat their employees almost like outsourced labor, like they're trying to drive down as fast as possible. In fact, you know, I think it's interesting because if you think about it, if you go back before 1980, if you go back to the period basically 1940 to 1980, like in other words, the sort of war, post-war period, early post-war period, you find a very different America a very different kind of capitalism. Like it's a, it's a capitalism, and America's a capitalist country, but it's a capitalism where the gains are distributed much more equally. There's a significant difference. The numbers are very clear. And yet, here's what's interesting. A much more equal America in terms of the economic gains, but a very economically strong America. In fact, those decades have the highest level of economic growth that America's ever experienced before or since. And yet that was the period of these incredibly high tax levels. Throughout that period, the the top marginal tax rate is 70% or higher. Some years it's above 90%. So all of these arguments that we hear floating around today, you know, that high tax rates will kill incentive. Ah, just ridiculous. Just take it back to what, look at what was happening in the, between 1940 and 1980 in this just incredible period of economic growth for America. Terribly high tax rates, and it didn't discourage anybody a bit. You know, there's just no evidence that the CEOs or entrepreneurs were, were, discouraged back then. They were working just as hard. If anything, they were harder and more productive than the, than the crowd today. So the argument just doesn't hold up when you put evidence in front of it. Now, I, I know you mentioned you co-wrote this book with Neil Brooks, who's a tax professor. So I'm assuming, you know, you got a lot of good insight from him. Yeah. You cover it in the book. I was hoping you could share a little bit what his take and your take is on how we should fix or modify the, the tax system. What are some things that you guys recommend? 
Well, first of all, I mean, it is so interesting, isn't it, that we've just come through an election in which the, yeah. the issue of taxes is so front and center. I mean, it's, it's really quite fascinating. And bringing back some progressivity to the tax system, in other words, shifting so that the burden is heavier on those at, at the upper end. I mean, Obama really made the case for that during the campaign. And importantly, he won the election. And I think that was a big part of, of what he won on. So I would argue uh, one of the things you really want to do is restore a more progressive system, you know, a more progressive tax system. And, of course, we're talking, you know, when the election campaign, you've been talking about raising the, the top marginal rate from 35 to 39 percent back to where it was in the Clinton years. <laughs> That's good. But Neil Brooks and I would argue you can sure put it a lot higher than that without discouraging any kind of economic growth. Well, as we say, back in the uh, early post-war period, the rates were as high as 70%, even higher, and there was tremendous economic growth. So, so we would argue that there's lots more room to push those rates up significantly higher than even 39%. And you can be sure, if you talk like that, uh, you're going to you know, hear all kinds of squawking and squealing. But I would argue that that's a political problem. That that isn't an economic problem. So 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 anyway, let, let's just say that's one area: putting up the personal tax rates, doing something about you know clamping down much more heavily, taking some serious clamp down on the use of tax havens because tens of billions of dollars are stored offshore in the Cayman Islands, as Mitt Romney has illustrated, and and other places like that. And that just makes a mockery of the whole tax system if the rich can move their money offshore and avoid taxes. And, you know, you can sort of say, well, that's not why they're moving it offshore. But there is really no other reason to put your money in a tax haven other than to avoid taxes, to structure your taxes and such <laughs> yeah, I mean, avoid taxes. No, that's just – it's funny how they, somebody would try to say there's other reasons. Like, yeah, there, there, there isn't another reason. Right. You know? but, but, but anyway, so there's clamp down on that. We'd love to see some oh, – let's take the, the, you know, the idea of the Robin Hood tax or the Tobin tax. This is the idea for an international tax on financial transactions. So the idea that every time you make a financial transaction, every time Wall Street – does a bet, there's tax to be paid on it. And, and the idea would be to t set the tax extremely low, you could, you know, 0.005% or something, so it would have no deterring effect on ordinary business. But it, could, it, it would add up in turn, you know, when you get into these huge mega deals that go on where they're constantly flipping money around in these financial speculative deals on Wall Street. And, and so the idea for that tax, which is proposed by James Tobin, an American uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist. I mean, his idea was really, the, the, the idea for it was to, as he said, throw sand in the wheels of financial speculation, like to slow it down in order to stop the financial speculation. And the side benefit would be you'd raise billions of dollars internationally that you could could you know obviously go to many worthwhile causes. So so that and and there's a lot of movement in Europe, actually, within the European Union in favor of these kind of financial transaction taxes. But there's been vehement resistance, actually very strong resistance from Canada and resistance from the U.S. Some support, but but not enough. Uh, now the the other thing that would be incredibly important would be to to revive the inheritance tax. As I'm sure you know, there's been, it's been greatly weakened as part of the Bush tax cuts so that it affects fewer and fewer people and it's become smaller and smaller. So it used to be, what was it, it used to affect, it, it never affects very many people. At the most it ever affected was the richest 2%. You know, so it's a tax that doesn't affect the vast majority of people. That, that's why it's such a great tax, you know, and it only happens once a generation. And, and the purpose of it, besides raising revenues, is to prevent the buildup of these sort of great dynasties. The idea is to tax them at least once a generation so that some of that money comes back into the community. But uh, tragically, what's 
happened is that, they say, with the Bush tax cuts and the whole anti-tax thrust of the Republicans, I mean, they practically gutted the inheritance tax. Now, now we argue that it should come back, it should be revived, and, and it should be reconstructed so that it's not... Uh, it's currently an, a tax on a state, so that when you die, your estate is taxed, and hence it's called a death tax, which makes it sound very evil <laughs> and mean. We should b- introduce an inheritance tax. And so it wouldn't be taxed, the estate wouldn't be taxed, but anybody inheriting money would be taxed for their inheritance, which makes it more like, I mean, they're receiving money in the same way one receives income from a job, let's say and you pay tax on that. So why on earth, if you pay tax on money you earn working hard at a job, why is it if somebody gives you a wonderful gift where you don't have to do a single thing, you just receive the money, why should that money not be taxed as well? Why should that person be more favorably treated than the person who's had to struggle and work hard to earn the money? That seems fundamentally unfair. I think yeah, that's... It's a great you know, point. violates the principles that most Americans would support if they thought about it. Our argument would be let's bring in an inheritance tax. Let's have an exemption that would be quite generous. Maybe the first million and a half dollars you inherit is tax-free, which is pretty generous, I would think. And then any, anything after that would be taxed at a reasonable rate that would rise progressively as your inheritance got bigger. And we actually calculated that if they, if the if U.S. were to bring in something like that, you could raise enough money just from that to bring in, for instance, a program that would give every child in America, when they turn 16, a $16,000 deposit in their bank account that would be able to be used exclusively for education or training. So you'd be taking from the very, very richest families in the country and redistributing broadly across the entire country so that every single young person would be given a chance, like a real starting chance in life. I mean, think of what that would, I mean, among other things, what that would communicate to young people about our desire to give them a fair shot in life and give them a chance to advance and develop themselves to their fullest potential. And think of what it would do for the productivity of the country to have everybody with a shot at developing to their fullest potential. I mean, I think when you think of something like that, it's just wildly exciting. Absolutely. And I've actually, I was reading an article today where there's a group of millionaires that were going to talk to Congress this week. It was called something like the Progressive Millionaires for income equality or something like that. But they had very similar thoughts, as you guys mentioned, where they wanted a a new tax bracket at 39% for $10 million or more to bring back the capital gains tax up to like 20% again, taxing dividends as income. And then again, with the inheritance tax, like reinstating that across the board. And this all sounds like good ideas. And it's millionaires that are coming out saying this, Democrats and Republicans, what is it going to take to have something like this happen? I mean, does the U.S. have to go through another terrible depression? Do we have to go through another recession? I mean, what is it going to take for people to realize this has to stop, this needs to be fixed? Yeah, well, first of all, you raise an interesting point about those millionaires that went to Congress. In fact, there are, like, there's a group, Wealth for the Common Good, that's been fighting for this for years. It's, it's a group of very rich people that press for progressive tax change. And, and like, we know Warren Buffett, yeah. you know, one yeah. of the richest men in the country, and Bill Gates, for that matter, are supportive of higher taxes on the rich. In fact, the interesting thing is the, the, the exit polls from the last election show that the support for higher taxes on the rich is really pretty strong. It even reaches into people that vote Republican. In fact, I think the simple truth is, I think you're, you're raising an interesting point, that in fact, there's more support for this idea than we ever kind of realized, partly because the debate has been so controlled by the think tanks and the kind of conservatively controlled media. And I know this, because I've been talking about this issue for many years, and I know that it's 
up until recently at least, one was always disparaged and treated as some kind of marginal sort of flaky person. If you talked about taxing the rich, you're sort of, oh, you're some kind of class warrior. You know, whereas what we're talking about is a kind of social compact between members of society. And and I guess, I guess what I would say is I think there's some very positive straws in the wind. Like you, you talk about the millionaires going to Congress. But, but I would say more broadly, I, I think the election result is a very encouraging sign. There's, of course, an attempt to sort of say, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, Obama didn't have a mandate. Romney was just a bad candidate. It, it's certainly true Romney was a bad candidate, and, and they made all kinds of incredibly silly errors. But more broadly, the election, that election did become something of a a referendum on the vision of the country. And the vision put forward by the right was very clearly, you know, that old idea, the wealth creators are the gods, we should give them what they want and they'll take care of the rest and all that. And Obama and the Democrats, I think, very effectively put forward a really a very different vision that came out very strongly at the Democratic Convention and also in the speeches towards the end of the campaign particularly, and, and also his wonderful speech, I think, his victory speech. He has made it clear that this election result is an affirmation of a different vision of America that isn't about getting rid of big government and you know, everybody's out there on its own. It's rather about the social bonds that hold us together. I think he even said something to the effect that he redefined American exceptionalism to be about having a sense of obligation to each other, the the bonds that hold this very diverse nation together or something like that. I mean, this is language that we have not heard for a long time. This is language that really overturns the the Reagan revolution with its talk about government being the problem. I, I think there's some very interesting things afoot. And I think for progressives, for instance, the, the goal now is to see that momentum and push it further, like go with it. See, see if we can push it farther down that road because I think there's some very strong potential for some really quite meaningful change. This is going to be my last question. I know I, I knew it would, we would go a little long, but what would you say to people that, that hear this and go, Look, more tax dollars sounds great, but tax dollars go to the government to be redistributed through programs and whatever it might be, and the government is extremely inefficient, which it is. Oftentimes it has the right intentions, but they squander money. What would be your response to that? Well, you know what's interesting? We all know of examples of government inefficiency, and I certainly not questioning that. Well, I mean, something like insufficiency in an organization like the Pentagon, for instance, is just enormous. <laughs> exactly. Right? It, you can do cross-country comparisons, and you, you look at the, the data for countries that have high taxes and therefore extensive social programs versus countries that have low taxes and kind of minimal social programs. And, and first of all, let, let's just remember that, you know, the simple truth is that when they collect those tax dollars. The mythology is sort of, you'd almost get the impression they just take it and bury it in a black hole somewhere. In fact, the the simple truth is in in most democracies, at least, what happens is those tax dollars get invested in strong public programs. And and, and like take then the the Scandinavian countries, because they're, of course, or the Northern European countries, they're the best example of this. They have very high taxes, much higher than, than, than we have in North America. But they have wonderful, wonderful social programs that just affect every aspect of people's lives, from health care to education to pensions to child care to seven weeks paid vacation for every member of the workforce. I mean, just phenomenal things that give a quality of life that we just can't even imagine here because we're, we're sort of taught to not know anything about what goes on in those countries. So they pay more taxes, they get spectacular benefits, they have just as good economic results or better economic results. They rank much higher on the World Competitiveness Forum, for instance, that's done out of Geneva, 
Oh, and also the Scandinavian countries, by the way, have no deficits, little or no deficits. Like Sweden now is running a surplus at a time when, you know, we here in North America have huge deficit problems, right? So it's not a question that if you spend a lot on these programs that you're going to be in deficit, not if you properly tax. So, so, So my point is that what you can do is you can look at those countries and measure them against let's say, the low-tax countries like the United States, Britain, and Canada, the Anglo-American countries have now become low-tax countries with low levels of social programs. And what you find, like take measures of things that matter to people, like measures of health, measures of social well-being, you know, like health, like longevity, infant mortality, teen pregnancies, crime rates measures of social cohesiveness, measures of contribute, you know, participation in electoral processes, all these kinds of things. What you find overwhelmingly is that on all these measures, the Scandinavian countries rank so high and the low-tax countries do so badly. These are important social and economic measures of well-being. So it's just because we turn our eyes and we don't away from these kind of statistics. We never hear about them. The simple truth is those countries with the much higher taxes are doing much better than we are here in North America. And, and you know, if we'd only kind of open our eyes up, we'd, we'd find that, you know, there's a, a lot that's very attractive what they do over there. And, and let me just maybe finish off with one further thought, which is in the U.S., I think there's a sense that people often think, well, people like it unequal like that. Well, you know, there's a fascinating study uh, done by a couple of economists at Harvard and Duke University, and what they did is they looked at questions of what people, what Americans liked in, in terms of equality. And what they found was that Americans actually like a more equal society much more than they even realized. Like, for instance, here's what they did. They did they gave three pie charts, okay? One, and they just marked them pie A, pie B, and pie C. Pie A was the way Sweden distributes income. Pie B was the way the United States distributes income. And pie C was, I think, it was perfect equality. And what they found, people had to select which pie, like they didn't know which country it was, but they knew how the pie was divided. And they didn't like the perfect equality. But they certainly didn't like the extreme inequality, the way the U.S. pie was divided, which they didn't know was the U.S. Overwhelmingly, like over 90 percent, they all chose the Swedish pie, right. which is, has inequality in it, but not extreme inequality. And, and in other words, that is what normal, ordinary, randomly selected Americans, not knowing it was, it was Sweden, they probably wouldn't have selected it because they know Sweden <laughs> is supposed to be bad. But because they didn't know that, they thought, that looks about right. That's... Uh, inequality but there's so inequality is good because it encourages people to work hard and contribute more but but not so much inequality that it stifles opportunity and that kind of thing they chose sweden that's that's just to me so striking in other words if americans didn't know it was sweden they they they'd take it in a second (laughs) well i mean i would choose sweden if not for the economic (laughs) policies for their beautiful women but that's just, country. <laughs> well, that's, true too. that's a different one linda again thank you so much for being on the show i i did want to reiterate to everyone uh, your new book billionaire's ball is fantastic it goes in depth on things that we've talked about on the show and much much more is there anywhere else that you could let our listeners know where they can find you and you know you've written numerous books that are all amazing maybe they could check out some other things that you've done yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I have a website, Linda at lindamcquag.com, and I certainly am happy for people to come and visit me on my website. Mm-hmm. But Billionaire's Ball is, is available in the U.S., like it's published by Beacon Press in Boston. I guess it's got the most up-to-date material on all this. I mean, a, a, an earlier book that I wrote that, that might be of interest is a book called It's the Crude Dude, uh, War, Big Oil, and the Fight for the Planet which is sort of about the geopolitics of oil, but that's a whole different subject, right? right? We could talk another hour on that. Believe me, I love this stuff. But anyway, listen, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you guys.
That was Linda McQuaig, and we hope you guys enjoyed it. Obviously, you saw that Chris and I pretty much agree with her and her political stance and that kind of stuff. We're not saying it's right. That's just... No, I'm saying it's right. F eh, it. Whatever. Maybe. No, I, I think I, you might be right. No, I know. And <laughs> it's just the point she made about Zuckerberg, I can't wait. I know we're going to get emails that are like, yeah, but that's ridiculous because of X, Y, and Z. Yes, you can find an opposite argument. But it's still true. People get really rich from either they create something, which they would have done anyways. They would have done it. Or it's given to them. And so we'll put the estate tax on them. We'll give everybody in the country education. Like there, there are things that can be done or we can at least start moving towards. Yeah. And that's the thing that kind of blows me away is people make the argument. I think you brought it up that the government operates very inefficiently. Yeah, you sure, would know. Sure they do. I see it all the time. But at the same time, even if they are inefficient, if we can just educate our kids here, yeah, that would be huge. I don't care where the rest of the waste spending goes. If we can educate our kids, get them to college, and start beating these other countries that are stealing our you know, intellectual property, our jobs, all that kind of stuff, I think we'll be in a better position. And clearly, I don't think this, this outro is going to end in the next minute or so. So if you want to tune us out, go ahead. But it's a, it's a fun thing to talk about. I mean, I, I, I made this analogy to somebody. I said, you know, I get pissed off when I get a property tax for my car. And then I get just as pissed off when I drive over a pothole and go, why is that not fixed? Like, you can't have it both ways. That's, I mean, as inefficient as might be, that's where your tax money goes. Or at least it tries to. Yeah, I mean, look at it this way. If your house is burning down, you're going to expect the fire department to come here. That's a government-funded resource. True. Like, who else is going to come? Your neighbors aren't going to come over with pots of water and start throwing them at your house. Like, there's stuff that we depend on the big federal government providing and again this all goes to the people will make the argument of waste but it's like sure that's gonna exist but there is necessities that people need and it has to be provided by somebody and it's gotta be companies aren't gonna do it here's the thing and, and i think it does have to be provided by a government type entity i mean if you put the fire department and made it a corporation next thing you know they're gonna come to your house and be like "Ooh, the cost of water just went up so we're not gonna we're not gonna put that out because our shareholders uh told us we need to hit some earnings i mean if you run the country like exactly like a company there there can be inefficiencies uh, fixed but it's not all about just turning a buck you have to look at people like people and not as cogs and i think yeah that's i don't know that's where you and i agree but people are out there shaking their head and i'm okay with that i'll tell you what send us an email with somebody you think is smart and takes the opposite stance don't send me glenn beck or some bull like that okay just don't do it somebody who's smart an economist whatever it might be and and i'll email them i can't promise you they'll say yes we have about a 20 percent probably hit rate send it to us you know there's a contact us on smart people podcast yeah send us anybody you want and chris brought up glenn black we don't want any former radio djs because that's all those guys are they're in the entertainment industry they're not in the politics or teaching industry mm -hmm. so send us people that you want us to talk to we'll talk to them we'll hear the other side of this no, we'll story. talk to one of them yeah well maybe two. maybe we'll talk to to all of them they'll all say yes and we'll be like oh we'll have 50 of you so anyways, uh, sorry about the ranting. You're probably not listening anymore. If you are, I just want to say thanks. Tune in next week. We got some great shows and it's the holidays. Happy holidays. Uh, we're going to we're going to be staying with you throughout.